Welcome to a very special and long-anticipated edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Mel Devenham, partner in our environment, planning and communities practice. Finally, we kick off our episodes dedicated to COP26. We've had to wait an additional year for the UN Climate Conference, during which there have been a raft of developments in the climate space to heighten anticipation, not least the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in August this year. Um, From my perspective, the call to action has never been stronger. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host, corporate governance expert, and I believe, Tim, we can now add COP26 speaker to the list, Tim Start. How fantastic, Tim, to have had the opportunity to participate in the Sustainable Innovation Forum on Monday. It was just after 1am my time, and whilst I'm very fond of you and your topic on rethinking corporate purpose, I have to admit I did not stay up. Don't hold it against me. I don't blame you, Mel. I was up at, uh, I think, 2am for my 4am start, and and I, I I was struggling to keep my eyes open. I may have had a Red Bull in hand while I was speaking. It's very, the very wee hours of the morning. Um, so for all of those in Australia who were warmly tucked up in bed, um, before we introduce our expert third wheel, can you share a quick takeaway from the session for us? Sure, Mel. I think the key takeaway was that corporate purpose is and probably always has been broader than profit maximisation for current shareholders. I think there was furious agreement on the panel around that. Um, We also talked quite a bit about the fact that failure to meet social expectations can have financial consequences. So in that sense, actually, uh, it is quite important to have regard to broader purpose and how companies engage with their stakeholders. Excellent. Um, It's a great listen. And if you did miss Tim's panel session, you'll be pleased to know it's been recorded. And we'll leave a link to that in the notes for this episode. Um, But without further ado, I must say I'm feeling really like the odd one out today as we're joined by another Sustainable Innovation Forum speaker, Lewis MacDonald, coming fresh from Glasgow. Welcome, Lewis. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Timothy. How are you doing? Well, and we're so pleased that you can join us. Um, For those who don't know Lewis, Lewis is the global head of our energy practice here at Herbert Smith Freehills. He's based in London and advises clients on their projects right across the energy value chain. Lewis, you may be familiar with the way we like to start each episode, with an introspective moment and reflection on why ESG is important. I know this won't be the first or the last time that you've reflected on this topic, so can you share with us what ESG means to you? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Um, Look, it's it's really going to the core of the purpose of of corporate activity, um, you know, just to to to, to recognise uh, the impact that our activities have on the communities that we're a part of, um, on on the environment, um, and on society more broadly. Um, you know, I've been working in the natural resources space for more than twenty years. I'm originally from Perth um, um, myself, and it's where I started my career. And, you know, when you're involved in those large scale projects, um, you know, you really get to see the impact that these projects have on the communities that they're in um, and also the the positive benefit they bring to society at large. So I I think in this industry, ESG has been really a major part of it 
for, for a very, very long time. I think it's now really spreading uh, beyond that the natural resources industry um, into all aspects of corporate activity. And we've seen a real explosion, if you like, in the, um, the consciousness of ESG um, really over the last few years, so that now all companies in all industries are conscious of it, are thinking about it, and are talking about it in their boardrooms. So it's um it's a it's an interesting time, and it's a it's a really important time for those engaged in this in this area. I think as um as it becomes much more prevalent and um much more a part of our daily practice. And Lewis, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the explosion um, in consciousness on ESG issues. I think um, you know those who probably have been most introspective in this space of later the big emitters. Um, and that was the subject of the panel session that you participated in, um, deep carbonisation for the big emitters. Really keen to hear your reflections from that session. Um, no doubt our audience will be keen to learn about some of the efforts we're starting to see that might shift the dial. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, it was quite a um, – because it was an interesting session because um, I suppose I was there – you know, as a lawyer in this area, but um, the, the the panel, you'll see if you watch the panel, I was sort of put on the spot as um, some kind of representative of big oil, uh, which wasn't, wasn't what I set out to uh, to do, but that, that's sort of where they put me. And I was alongside uh, the CEO of the World Cement Association, the chairman of the World Gold Council, um, and a, a, a gentleman representing a biomass project, and then another consultant. So it was almost like a kind of Bond villain setup. <laughs> um it's quite interesting um but it was you know that the each um of the individuals on the panel was asked about you know what they're doing um to to bring about the decarbonization of their industries and, and where they're at um and you know when you hear um people from these different organizations speaking you you can see that they are deeply thinking about these areas and are, and are taking steps um, you know, for example, the gentleman from the World Gold um, Council was talking about the fact that uh, gold is a product that is has been recycled for a very long time, that it's a product that where there's no waste. If you think about it, it's, it's got to be true. And then was saying that when you think about gold mining, it's really all about um, the emissions from the power that's generated in the in the in the process of mining and and, and refining, and how it's that it's that part of it that needs to be focused on decarbonisation, which is what we see around the world when we look at mining operations and um, the efforts that are being taken to, to greenify or to clean up those operations. It's really a lot about the power um, that's used. In my in my sort of contributions, if you like, um, I was trying to highlight the efforts that are being made by the oil and gas companies um, in this space, you know, the visions they've set towards 2050 around net zero and the activities that they're pursuing to try to get there. Um, and I don't know how widely known um, all of these efforts are, but I mean, I'm interacting with the oil and gas companies on a daily basis. And um, I know that ESG and climate change more particularly um, are, the, are the key issues discussed in the boardroom. They really are, they go to the existence now of these companies. And um, to have those net zero uh, ambitions over time, they know that they need to take steps and they need to demonstrate um, their progress towards those visions. The visions are meaningless if they're just thrown out into the future and, and they're, they're things that are for tomorrow. They're, they're only meaningful if they um, affect what you do today and if they um, lead to some sort of interim targets 
being set as well. So I was pretty keen to highlight that because I know it's happening because I know the sort of projects that we get engaged in, you know, the renewables projects for the for the major oil and gas companies, but also the probably more importantly, the um the the projects to develop the new technologies. I think hydrogen in particular is a really important technology um, where we need to see a lot more action. And, you know, we're hearing a lot now about hydrogen at this conference and of course more generally. So yeah, so that's sort of what I um, what I focused on to some extent. But it was an interesting panel. As you say, it's available online if anyone wants to watch it. Lewis, I think that's probably a good segue um, to the next question we wanted to put to you. So you spoke at an earlier expert panel on reallocating international capital and the role of law. And, and at that panel, you said that there's no shortage of enthusiasm and money for net zero projects, but rather the challenge is the creation of investable net zero projects. Can you talk us through that a little bit and, and tell us what you mean by that and the, the role that lawyers have to play? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tim. That's a good question. Because um, I think this really goes to the heart of how we are going to make progress here towards net zero. Um, there's this number that's being bandied about of 130 trillion. You know, the, the, the number of um, that's the money that Mark Carney says um, that uh, is dedicated towards net zero now in terms of assets under management of the major financial institutions, 133 trillion to be exact. Um, so there's, there is no shortage of money available for the right sort of projects. The hard part is making those projects able to attract the money. I always think about it as a, it's a signal being transmitted, but they also need to have receivers to receive the signal. So there's a, there's, there, there's a large signal being transmitted, very, very um, intense frequency. But to receive the signal and to be able to do something about it, you have to create the projects to receive the money. And the projects have to be investable. Um, to be investable, they have to make money themselves. You know, money attracts money or return attracts money. Um, if we focus as lawyers and as people in the um, financial world on creating projects that make money, the money will flow. It's just, it, it's just seems to be how it works. If you look at the renewables industry and the way that renewable energy projects have been supported over time, countless billions have been allocated to those projects by governments in the form of feed-in tariffs, uh, renewable energy obligation certificate schemes and things like that. This is um, basically government-supported money to, to, to um, support individual projects, asset by asset, to make them work. Um, and that's worked spectacularly well. The scale has been achieved. Practice has been undertaken such that the costs have just um, fallen off a cliff. So now the issue with renewables is how to build them fast enough, you know, getting planning permissions and things like that. It's moved on. You don't need to talk about them at the conferences anymore so much. But taking that approach into hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, nuclear even, abated uh, hydrocarbons, uh, getting the money to flow into those decarbonisation activities of the existing assets and then the building of the new ones. This is actually at the heart of the net zero strategy of the United Kingdom, but also to some extent Australia. If you look at the uh, technology, not taxes, was the sort of phrase. I know it's been, Australia's been criticised for it, but it's not such a different approach to the United Kingdom in the sense that if you can provide the government support to the individual projects to get the individual project to be investable, the money will flow into it from the private sector and you'll get the cheap finance going to back up the projects. 
and and that's that's something that we can all focus on and the lawyers have to design the instruments um, that provide the money from the governments to make the projects investable. Um, there's another discussion altogether, Tim, as to whether the private sector could actually work out how to do all this without governments. And this is something that I've started thinking about post COP26 as something maybe where we can just move move on and move forward. So if you want to talk about more about that, we can, but I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to segue out if you want to. It's a it's a it's a discussion that I've been drawn into once or twice, Lewis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think Tim, I think people are a bit frustrated by the fact that this yeah. is the twenty sixth COP, and there's there was you know we were obviously not in the blue zone. We were in the other zone um, where the business um, side of things was being discussed. It's a very positive zone, very optimistic zone. I mean, you beamed in via you know via the internet, but you probably picked up um, through your own panel that there is a buoyancy in the private sector now around all this. There is an optimism. I think we feel that every day. But in the blue zone, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that. It feels like you, you, you're going over the same old ground again and again. And obviously the text that came out wasn't all that exciting in the end. Um, and it was disappointing. And Alok Sharma, the um, climate change um, minister in the UK, got quite emotional, actually, as he was announcing it. And you start to think maybe there's more the private sector can do um, to move things forward without such a, a need to rely on government. So you know, they're, they're the reflections that I've started to have coming out of this, Tim and, and Mel. So. I, I think certainly that would be um, a neat way through a lot of this. Uh, the difficulty that we keep hitting our heads against is without strong policy and regulation, can you have the level of certainty you need to be able to invest from a private sector perspective? Yeah, that's yeah. that's right, Tim. And, and also, you know, how policy and regula regulation can actually cut across corporates trying to make progress. Um, so there are those hardwired roadblocks um, which need to be dissolved to enable greater corporate action. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I just think we're starting to we're starting to get to a point where the corporate sector, the private sector, is starting to really lead, and that that might be a good thing in the sense that the private sector can almost design its ideas around what these projects need to look like and what the systems need to look like, and then go to government and say, "This is what we need. This is what we want." I think we're starting to see that dialogue more and more, but it also is maybe a source of optimism for us all. And, and maybe it also clarifies the role that we all have as lawyers in this space in that we need to work closely with our clients and closely with the, you know, the, the, the financial institutions as a whole um, to, to sort of help government to understand what it is they need to do, what support they need to give. So a bit of new thinking coming out of COP26, which is always invigorating. Oh, I, I like it. You know, corporates and lawyers, part of the solution not just the problem, right? Um, and he, Lewis, you mentioned hydrogen a couple of times and Tim and I had Dr. Cameron Kelly from ARENA as a previous expert third-wheeled guest um, and we spoke a, quite a bit about Australia's potential to emerge as a hydrogen superpower but also a number of other opportunities that are on the horizon including offshore wind. Um, you might be aware progress is being made in Australia to establish a regulatory regime to support the development of the sector here, but obviously offshore wind is not new 
and the UK has taken a leadership position in this space. So I'm sure there's a lot to be learned from that experience. Um, thinking about COP26, um, thinking about uh, the UK experience with offshore wind, have you got any thoughts on how Australia can replicate the UK's success? Yeah, look, um, the fact that the UK has had so much practice now with offshore wind, I mean, they're up to 10 gigawatts. They're aiming to for 40 by 2030. So they, they are the leader in the world. Um, they supported these initial projects with CFDs, so Contracts for Difference which was a, um, a, you know, a, a tool, if you like, um, that was developed um, in relation to massive public infrastructure in the UK and nuclear that's been deployed. It's one of those tools that I was talking about earlier. Um, so that's, that's interesting. So they've created a methodology of investability in this space. Now, the costs are already falling dramatically for offshore wind. Um, and the CFDs that have now been um, put out with the last round, which is round four, um, you know, they were put out, they were bid against, and we saw some of the highest prices ever bid, which means people are starting to accept a lower return. And this is as the oil and gas majors have come into the space and started bidding. So I think there's a bit for this. Maybe Australia can take a look, maybe, at what the UK has been doing um, and see if there's uh, there's some useful information there. Um, you mentioned hydrogen as well in Australia's role there. I think that's really exciting. You know, I've, I'm, I've been involved in liquefied natural gas for a long, long time. Um, I know what Australia has done in that area and how much they've supported um, Asian nations and their development and aspirations. If you look at the, the links with Japan, with Korea, with China, and now more so into Southeast Asia as well, the role that Australia's played in providing those nations with energy is just incredible. As Australia knows how to do these major export projects, and I'm sure that Australia will be a leading country in the export of hydrogen you know, as demand for that product grows. So I'm looking on with great excitement at what's going to happen in the Pilbara and other parts of Australia as you start to export uh, you know, hydrogen molecules from renewable energy. It's really exciting. Lewis, we've talked a bit about um, investment and projects. Do you have a view on M&A um, activity and, and mm. corporate, corporate acquisitions, demergers, divestitures? as yeah. companies do set about decarbonising? Yeah, yeah. We're seeing an enormous amount of M&A activity right now. You know, um, I, the way I looked at it in 2020, during the pandemic, a lot of the bigger energy companies really set their strategies and they came out of the blocks um, early in 2021 with, with pretty clear plans as to what they wanted to do. And over the course of 2021, the M&A activities just ramped up. So most corporate lawyers now in the sector are, are probably as busy as they've ever been. And I'm sure a lot of the lawyers out there listening to this will know what I'm talking about. Um, th there are divestments, there are acquisitions, there are joint ventures, there are new projects. It's like the strategy's been set and they're all just accelerating out of the corner into the home straight as, the, as they pursue their objectives. Um, you know, we're, so we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of the majors um, go through their divestments, particularly with the oil price now being a bit higher it's a sensible time to start to divest and shift. But then we're seeing these new joint ventures emerging, these new partnerships emerging into the new areas, you know, hydrogen, um, carbon capture uh, and, and renewables. A lot of, of M&A activity in renewables um, because it's a, you know, the, the, the prices are very high and also the majors want to measure progress 
against all those objectives they've set. So there's an incredible hunger at the moment for very large renewable energy portfolios and a lot of competition for them. So we're really seeing activity across the board as um, as companies really look to, um, like I say, put their foot down and accelerate on their strategies. Sounds very positive, but also also tiring for a yeah. <laughs> corporate yeah. lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we might leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Lewis. We appreciate your time, uh, particularly when you have been traveling. For, for those of you who tune into the third wheel regularly, you'll know that Mel and I like to close each episode with an interesting or quirky fact from the world of ESG. And I thought this one would be right up your alley, Lewis. For those of you who are amongst Lewis's almost 3,000 LinkedIn followers, you'll know that he's a keen musician and often shares his covers of popular songs, which I think you began as a way to help yourself and others get through lockdown in London. Most recently, you might have also seen Lewis's own original song, Tell Lies and Do Nothing, which he composed almost entirely from slogans chanted by protesters and plastered throughout the city of Glasgow, trying to capture the mood on the street. But it seems Lewis is not the only one feeling COP-inspired. Midnight Oil has also released a new song just ahead of COP26. The song is called Rising Seas, and it's about frustration with climate change in action. Many of our listeners will be familiar with Midnight Oil's songs in the 80s about Aboriginal land rights, most notable amongst them Beds Are Burning, which was written after the band toured through remote Aboriginal communities in the outback, and they saw themselves the firsthand the seriousness of the issues in health and living standards. Their new song was actually recorded a little while ago, uh, two years ago, but released uh, ahead of COP, um, and they recorded it as part of the Makarata Project, which is a mini album that they made with First Nations collaborators, including a bunch which will be familiar to our Australian audience, such as Jessica Malboy, Dan Sultan, Troy Casadaly, and Kev Carmody. And on that note, we'll bid you goodbye. Thanks for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.